welcome to episode 39 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. I'm Rachel Zucker. Last August, in preparation to teach my fall classes at NYU, I read a whole bunch of new books to decide which ones I wanted to teach. It's one of my favorite parts of my job. I love trading recommendations with creative writing professors and poet friends. I love reading books I don't know very well along with my students, allowing our collaborative reading to bring me deeper into the books. My friend Erica Meitner recommended Lessons on Expulsion, a first book by Erica Sanchez. I read it, loved it, and reached out to Erica Sanchez who responded, and now I'm thrilled to have Erica Sanchez on Commonplace and to get a chance to introduce her work to you. I met with Erica at my apartment on September 8th. She had just come from a meeting with her publisher, not Grey Wolf, which published Lessons on Expulsion this past July, but Random House, which published Erica's first young adult novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. The publication date of that book is actually October 17th, today. But that day in September, when Erica and I met, that was the first time she had held the finished hardcover book in her hand, and she was glowing. Between then and now, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter was longlisted and then shortlisted for the National Book Award. This conversation is a bit more formal than some of the others. I think it's because I didn't know Erica at all and because there was so little time between first reading her book and speaking with her for Commonplace. I love how varied these conversations are, based on how well I know the person I'm speaking with, the dynamic between us, our respective temperaments, the content of our conversation, what's happening in our personal lives and in the world. Erica and I talk about both her new books, how she became a writer, her family, about some of the other jobs she's had, such as marketing, freelance writer, and sex advice columnist. I'm really looking forward to reading Erica's YA novel and her book of essays when it comes out. If these are anything like her poems, and I suspect they are, both will be fabulous. Patrons will be entered in a raffle that contains Lessons on Expulsion and I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, as well as access to a sound file of Erica reading her poem Capital and a reading list provided from Erica. Thank you to Grey Wolf Press and Knopf Books for Young Readers for offering these great books and to all our patrons for making Commonplace possible. A special shout out for Brian Borland and Seth Pennington for their support of books via Sibling Rivalry Press and now for becoming patrons as well. Thank you to all our listeners, especially Eleanor Smagarinsky, Allison Whipple, Rebecca Brill, and Paul Dykman for your lovely, quirky, supportive messages. I haven't responded to all of you yet, but I promise to do so, and I want everyone to know how much we love getting tweets, emails, and soundpipe messages. Please keep them coming. And please, if you have a spare moment, write us a review on iTunes or recommend Commonplace to a friend. As always, you can find the links to the books and people we discuss at commonpodcast.com. There, you will also find links to become a patron and to sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode. And now, here's my conversation with Erica Sanchez. Wow. 
welcome I'm thank so, you so, so excited um, that you're here I read your book for the first time a few weeks ago and then for the second time yesterday oh wow <laughs> um, and and here you are it's like you've materialized which is totally fabulous mm-hmm. and this is a big um, day or time for you also mm-hmm. so um, the book of yours that I read which I loved um, is called lessons on expulsion and it came out in July right right gray wolf okay and then you were just telling me that this other book which I'm holding in my hand which is gorgeous and I'm very excited to read I am not your perfect Mexican daughter just you just got the hard copy today yeah it comes out October 17th wow and it's being marketed as a YA novel Mm -hmm. and what it what's the age range that you imagine although of course every kids are different and adults a lot of adults like YA too yeah uh it's 14 and up Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know I was a kid who was reading all sorts of inappropriate things when I was was young. So, I mean, I'm sure younger kids will get their hands on it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, I'm going to hand it back to you. Otherwise, I'm going to try to take it. Um, (laughs) I'm really, really excited um, to to read that. I read a lot of YA um, to, well, I used to to my older sons and now to my younger. But um, then sometimes I just read it to myself. Um, it's really comforting in a sense. I, th- I find that too. Mm-hmm. I find that too. Yeah. Um, do you want to start with a poem before we like? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, do you want to read something from your new book? Yes. Okay. Because um, I don't have anything new really. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. The book sucked me dry. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm like, what am I in the mood for today? Oh, you know, I never read this one. Lavapies, Madrid, Spain. Ripe fruit in my hands at the market. The sharp smell of ginger. I'll wait for six months for him to visit me here, like a body on the verge of fever. My tiny kitchen that week, pots hissing, smoke swirling. The January air slips in from an open window, broken cinnamon sticks, frost. After dinner, we crush the moist hash, mix it with cheap tobacco, and roll it in rice paper. When we are heavy with lentils and smoke, we braid our bodies together on my twin bed. I dig my face into his beard. The neighbors are yelling in Arabic, and I can't sleep when he is next to me. For breakfast, we eat two slippery eggs and drink coffee with frothy cream. At noon, we finally manage to unhook ourselves and leave my apartment. It's Sunday and the streets of Lavapies are fresh with dog shit, and the bohemians with ragged hair are playing guitar on the corner of Valencia and Miguel Servet. Women wrapped in orange saris are bargaining for vegetables. As we pass the rotisserie chickens in the cafe window, the three-legged dog follows us, begs us for food. That night on the train to the airport, I watch an ugly baby being breastfed by its gorgeous mother. He nudges me, says to stop staring, stop being rude. I tell him that I am thinking about his wife and he asks me if I could stand it and I say yes. At night when he is gone, I massage cocoa butter onto my nipples, rub my shaved legs on clean sheets, hold my fingers in my mouth until I fall asleep. Today, I stand in a grocery store, digging my nails into a ginger root, 
smelling it like a goddamn fool. Thank you. Um, I'm glad you read that one. Oh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we could just start with how did you become a poet and how did this book come to be? Yeah. Well, I became a poet now as a kid. I realized I really loved words and um, I kind of fell in love with poetry and I started to write it um, I think I was about 12 and then in high school I was like the weird poet girl with the you know fishnet stockings and the funky hair so um, I just kind of became that and I've never wanted to do anything else I've always just wanted to be a writer um, that that poem was born um, many, many years ago. Actually, it's one of the earliest poems. Uh, I think I was 22 when I wrote it. Mm. And um, it was after I graduated from college. I, I went um, to Spain on a Fulbright. And um, that poem is based on the neighborhood that I lived in. Um, and so, yeah, this book has been in the making for over a decade uh, I started writing the earliest poems in college. Um, I'm 33 now, so um, I feel like I finally earned it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I spent so much time revising and, you know, taking poems out and putting them back in and cutting things up and laying everything on the floor. And so it's been a, a long journey mm. for sure. Um how different is the book is this is the book in its finished form than it was when you maybe start first started sending it out i mean i don't know what it what the submission process was like with this manuscript but did you submit it to contests did you submit it directly to the publisher i did to many many contests and way too early Mm -hmm. it it was not ready to be sent out but i was very eager Mm -hmm. um and i'm really glad that i wasn't taken in the beginning stages because I think I'd be really embarrassed of that book. Um, and that's something that my professor, uh, Dana Levin, had told me. She she said that I should wait and that I shouldn't rush it. And she was right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had other mentors tell me the same thing. But I was just, like, young and eager. And I don't know. I um, I got ahead of myself. But it all worked out because... Um, I kept holding out for like the best contest. I would only submit to like the top contests and then the top publishers or the publishers that I I loved because I really wanted the book to make an impact. And I would rather wait than to, you know, put out a book through a press that maybe not won't get as much uh, readership. Mm. So... I, I just kind of waited it out in in a sense um and in another sense i was i was trying to publish it way too early mm-hmm. when when um dana levin or other professors or mentors um said you know be patient mm-hmm. or you're not quite ready um were did you feel like they were talking about uh the manuscript did they feel like that they were talking about you being young and uh and or 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 some kind of um idea of the the right way to Mm -hmm. go about things like what was your feeling um it was based on their own experiences and I really appreciated that 
knowing that it took them a long time to publish their first books. Um, I think Eduardo, one of my mentors, he was 37. Mm. And he would always tell me, like, slow down. It's not a race. It's going to be fine. It's going to happen. I wish I would have really internalized that more. um, Because it's it's a long career. Mm -hmm. Um, But, again, it all worked out really well. So... I can't complain. I'm, I'm asking that question. I'm sort of like sticking with that because sure. one of the things that I really responded to in your book and mm-hmm. that and that also since reading some stuff about you and, and um, some non-fiction uh, prose pieces, journalistic mm-hmm. pieces that you've written, is I think that there's this in- incredibly powerful intersection between um, there's like a constellation of things that, mm-hmm. that, that come up for me around your work. And one of them is about um, exuberance and desire mm. and readiness and ambition. Mm. And, um, and, and then also like side by side, um, shame and humiliation and um, I don't think fear is exactly sure. the right word, but, but, but I don't, um, and feminism Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, hopefully we'll talk about this too, you know, that you had this experience of, um, being a sexist vice columnist and, um, (laughs) uh, and so I think that's really interesting that sometimes I, I associate, um, that particular constellation of things is sometimes either balancing each other or tempering each other. But Mm -hmm. what I love about the poems is that I feel like they're those um, different qualities are present without diluting each other. Oh, interesting. And so the, even I, that's why in part I was curious about this moment in your mm-hmm. life, and there's probably been many of them, where it is hard to know how to take advice like that, like whether to, to say, you know, um, yes, I trust my mentor. I trust. I trust my teacher. But at the same time, how, how and how much of this is based on the poems and their their readiness, or and how much of this is based on the idea of like what a young woman should be doing, or how successful, or what or what is someone else's idea of like the timeline for my readiness and success? Yeah, and when to push back against a convention? Sure, that's not accurate for you yeah yeah it's a really good question um I've always been extremely ambitious um to my own detriment I will say uh at times I say that I'm like uh, an adult Lisa Simpson over achieving or trying to always um and that sometimes I think gets in the way of the work mm-hmm. when it's it, it doesn't it takes away from the, the focus of the work and I think that that could be damaging. Um, and I've learned to scale back from that. Uh, also, ever since I was a kid, I, I've been wanting to be a writer. And I had so many obstacles. Um, I mean, beginning in my childhood, I grew up pretty poor. My family um, immigrated from Mexico. And, um, you know, just that's not a life that I saw anywhere. I didn't have role models in that sense where I saw like a professional woman and was like, I want to be her. I just didn't even see that. I I got that from TV and books. Um, my family was very hardworking, but I didn't want to work in a factory. Um, so I always had this vision of like this 
amazing life that I wanted. I wanted to travel and I wanted to write and I wanted to meet people and have just like an exuberant, you know, existence. Hmm. Um, but I think as a woman of color, there is a sense of guilt because oftentimes we're told we don't deserve those things. Um, that's not for us. We're here to serve other people. And so there's always this back and forth where I'm like, I deserve nice things. Wait, like, no, I don't, you know, and it, it's just ongoing. I, I've started to undo that uh, recently um, more effectively. Um, but it's this duality that I have faced uh, throughout my life. I think also ambition in a woman is seen as really unattractive at times. Yeah. And so. I know it hasn't been good for my romantic relationships necessarily uh, in many ways, not all of them, but some. And uh, it's just this constant fight to live the life that I think I should be living um, and the rest of the world, in a sense, telling me I'm crazy. Hmm. Um, and sometimes I thought I was crazy. I'm like, do I really deserve those things? Um, and I still have those moments mm -hmm. to be quite honest do, do you uh, you know so here you are on, um, with your brand new hardcover book um, mm -hmm. at your elbow um, and your brand new poetry book at my elbow um, do, it, does the publication of these books help you feel like you deserve these things and like you're on the track of the life that you really wanted um, to live? Yes, uh, very much so now. I I feel very, very privileged and lucky. I know that's a word that's thrown around a lot, but like I really understand that what I have is very rare. Um, I worked really, really hard, but I know some people work hard their whole lives and they don't get the things that I get. So uh, I feel very just honored to, you know, teach at Princeton, for instance. I mean, holy shit, who would have thought that? I Little Erica never would have imagined that she'd be teaching at Princeton. Mm. Um, also, I, you know, I'm middle class. I grew up poor and now I'm middle class. I uh, have a passport. I am a citizen. Um, I get to move throughout the world in a way that a lot of people don't. And I feel like because of that, I owe it to others to, you know, talk about, you know, issues that I feel are really important um, because I have a platform and people listen to me. So might as well use it for good. And um, but sometimes it still astounds me that people care about what I think, hmm. because for most of my life, I didn't feel like I mattered. Yeah. And finally, it receiving recognition is is kind of startling um i had this amazing conversation with morgan parker she was mm -hmm. the only person that i've uh so far uh we recorded a conversation for pot for commonplace in front of a live audience oh cool which was fabulous but also terrifying because morgan is so smart and yeah. like so quick and i was like oh god <laughs> but um morgan is working on a, a young adult novel oh, cool. and um she was talking about how um in large part the audience for that is her younger self yes so i was, I was wondering when you brought up little erica <laughs> um you know uh do you feel like uh you in part were writing that uh writing uh to that younger self or, or um, 
to the t- to the part either to the part of yourself or to the time in your life mm-hmm. when you felt like other people were not listening to you yeah yeah it was uh, definitely a very cathartic experience to write the book um and of course as an artist i know it has to go beyond catharsis because if it's just catharsis then it's no good but um writing it was pretty well both books it was just painful um to kind of relive a lot of the things that i kind of in some ways had repressed um just growing up with a, a mental illness that wasn't treated that was really difficult um, and so I wrote the book for, you know, my younger self. I wrote it for other girls of color. Um, that's my audience, just other like weird girls that don't really fit in. Um, it's for the novels for misfits, I say. Um, it's full of like really kind of colorful, strange characters. Can I ask you some uh more obvious questions for just one sec so okay so you're 12 years old you're interested in you want to be a writer Mm -hmm. um but then okay how do you get from there to here i know you (laughs) went to college and you so but sure when and when were these two were were you writing the novel and the book of poetry at the same time i know you must have been right because the book of poetry spans 10 years yeah yeah talk talk about that and you had all these and when did you become a journalist too like, oh when yeah did you start? yeah yeah I did do that I still do um <laughs> so yeah I went to college and I went to Spain on the Fulbright and that was really great for my writing and then I went to graduate school at University of New Mexico which was a very odd experience but I got a lot of writing done hmm. um and then I graduated who and did, who did you studied with study with at University of New Mexico? Uh, Dana Levin, okay. and so I was that. very lucky to work with her because she's amazing. Got it. Yeah, um, and so I graduated, and then I needed to get a job because I needed to eat, mm-hmm. and it was during like the worst time of the repression, a recession. Oh, that's a Freudian <laughs> slip. Anyway, uh, the recession, and I couldn't find anything. Mm. It was. A dreadful time and I ended up working in marketing for two years mm. and it was just god-awful like I was were not you, built did you go, for that were you did you stay in New Mexico or you went back to Illinois I went back to Chicago mm. and I interviewed for like everything what I really wanted was maybe like a nonprofit job or something and I, I thought eventually I would end up teaching mm. I didn't think that it would be so difficult to get a job that fulfilled me in some sort of way Uh, so I was stuck uh, in marketing for two years doing the most mindless shit (laughs) I just can't even explain it to you what were you selling well I my role was uh, so embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) my title was print estimator so it was marketing for alcohol um distributors mostly and um i would estimate the cost of things like posters wow and it was so irrelevant to anything ever so i was like doing simple math all day (laughs) i'm like i'm a writer what is this there were uh times where i had to do data entry i was so miserable Mm. oh my god anyway so that was a hard time i cried a lot Mm. um and then I got laid off from that. And I was like, thank you, Jesus. 
and then I just did a string of other things. But while I was working these shitty jobs, um, I was writing a blog called Oh Hellsna, which was just kind of me ranting about whatever was pissing me off at the moment. Mm. And uh, people actually liked it and were sharing it. And it kind of took off. And from there, I started writing articles. Um, I started with the Huffington Post and NBC Latino and uh, Cosmo. Uh, the editor had been reading my blog and she asked me to, to be the um, the advice columnist for Cosmo. So that was unusual. That was unexpected. Um, and so I kind of built from there. Mm-hmm. Um, the novel I started writing about five years ago and um, it did overlap somewhat with the poetry, but there were times where I was so obsessed with the novel that I didn't do anything else. Hmm. Um, in fact, writing it was probably a little bit unhealthy because that's all I did. That's all I talked about. Um, it was kind of obsessive, hmm. um, but I think a lot of writers know what that feels like. And when you were um, writing the novel over the course of that those five years, were you supporting yourself with freelance writing? Were you mm-hmm. teaching? Were you, what, what was happening? I was doing a bunch of stuff. So I was tutoring. I uh, taught a class. Um, adjuncting is really rough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so hard. And the pay is dreadful. Um, and then I was, yeah, I did a lot of freelance work. And then I had a, a job at a PR firm for a second, well, nine months. And that was, I wrote an essay about that. It mm. was That was really hard. Um, it was actually here in New York, and so I would travel back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at one point, I got the Ruth Lily, which helped so much. I was so grateful. I was like, oh, my God, I could just kind of relax a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I got both books picked up, and everything just kind of worked out. But it was a really difficult journey, I will say. Mm-hmm. Um there were times where I'm like, what the fuck am I doing with myself? <laughs> yeah. Would, what were the ways that you kind of maintained faith and hope? Was it, you know, and belief in yourself, even through those moments where part of you was like, this is probably a colossal mistake? Yeah. Um, I just think the fact that it's the only thing that has ever made sense to me. That's kind of what kept me going. Like, what else am I going to do if I mm. stop writing? Like, who would I even be? I have no clue. Mm. And so I was just like, this is going to fucking work out some way or other. And uh, thank God it did. But there were times where I really, I felt like I was delusional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a question to ask, but I just want to preface it by saying, I find ambition in women to be very attractive. <laughs> so, <Awesome>. yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, I'm, I'm, really interested in um, the ways in which uh, so many of the writers that I really admire write in many different genres. Not Mm -hmm. all of them. Some people are like, I'm a poet only. And that's pretty fabulous Mm -hmm. also. Um, Like, you know, Alice Notley, Lucy Brock Broido. I mean, they Mm -hmm. they, they write some other stuff, but they're like dedicated to the genre. Um, But I'm, you know, I was in my conversation with Kathy Park Hong, she's talking a lot about how she 
uh, is writing much more prose now and oh. feels like there are things that she just needs to say. Yeah. And it, and it needs to be direct. And that for her, she, you know, that has to happen um, in prose rather than in poetry. Um, whereas um, other writers may feel that, that the directness or a certain kind of content needs to be uh, handled in poetry or yeah. prose. Anyway, um, so... I read, now I can't remember the name of the piece, but it was a really great article that you wrote um, where you talked about um, uh, overcoming shame of sexuality. And you, ta- you talk oh, about yeah. the, the, the story of your mother finding a condom in yeah. your pocket. And that also comes up um, in your book of poetry. Yeah. Um, there, the poem is called... Hija de la chingada. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wrote it down and then I couldn't find it. Um, and so I don't know if that same story comes up. In the, it actually does. Yeah. So I, I, I was <laughs> thinking it might. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to know um, when you set out to write the novel, for example, mm-hmm. um, were you thinking like, okay, I, this, the, the, this thing I need to say or the story I need to tell or I need to tell it in a certain way has to be in a novel or were you thinking, and this is the, where the preface comes mm-hmm. in, like, yeah, as successful as I'm ever going to be as a poet, if that even happens, nobody reads poetry. I if I want to make this into a life, yeah, I need to write a novel. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. I will say, um, part of me was like, I need to diversify so I can make a living. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I've always wanted to write a novel, and the what I accomplished through the novel is something I could not accomplish through poetry. It's just not possible. Um, I feel like in prose, I can be funny. In poetry, not so much. Um, In prose, you know, I build characters and worlds and things, and it's just not the same thing in poetry. I mean, there's there are elements of that, but I feel like there's a sense of freedom in each genre and it's very distinct so with poetry i don't force a poem like if the poem is not going where i think it needs to go i don't i don't coerce it you know um i think there's something really mystical about poetry which sounds kind of hokey but i feel like it it chooses you at times um, I'm not going to sit down and write a poem about spring. Like, that's just not going to be good. It's going to be horrible. Uh, I don't <laughs> do that. I kind of wait for things to come. Uh, I read all the time and I do exercises and things. But um, I feel like it, it needs to just manifest itself. Whereas in fiction or any sort of prose... I, I have more control over what the subject matter is like I'm working on a project right now and I'm coming up with a plot and that that's not something I can do in poetry I can't be like this poem is gonna be about this because that's never gonna be good um and especially with nonfiction, I I get to tie in so many different things I'm writing um a book of essays right now I'm almost finished and I write a lot about mental health and I weave in history and pop culture and all sorts of things. And 
that's just really difficult to do, I think, in poetry. Um, and I also want to reach different audiences. Yeah. And um, I, I love writing both poetry and prose. I, I think they're satisfying in very different ways. Were the, is the book of essays have a title yet? Crying in the Bathroom. Awesome. Yeah. And that, that is the, that is a title also of one of your essays, which was published in an anthology, yes. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and are the other essays, have most of them been published uh, individually or were they commissioned or uh, like, uh, or were you just like, I've got this one essay. Yeah. Let me see if I can make a book of other essays. Yeah, that's kind of how it started. Uh, the editor, Robin Ram, she contacted me and asked me to be part of this anthology. And I was like, huh, okay, essays. Like, I don't really write those very mm. much. Um, and so I, I wrote that one and I rewrote it and I rewrote it and she kept pushing me. Uh, she was like, no, this is not right, mm. which I really appreciate because it wasn't. And finally, I, I, I got it once um, she gave me my final nudge. And after that, I was like, oh, I should. That, that's my next project. It's a book of essays. And so since then, I've been working on that. Um, and I write a lot about, you know, the same kind of things I always write about, but in, in different ways about sexuality and um, depression and race and identity and all those things. Um but yeah, it w it was uh, it was kind of frustrating after I finished my book of poetry. I'm um, like, what do I do now? And my novel, I, I finished them both, and I'm like, I just don't even know what to do with myself anymore. Hmm. And then that kind of came to me, and I've been working on that ever since. So that should be finished sometime in the near future. <laughs> it's just very exhausting to write nonfiction. Yeah. Do, do you have an editor who's working with you as closely on those other essays as as that experience with crying in the bathroom? Uh, no, actually, uh, I, sh I would love that. Um, I am going to turn it into my agent um, sometime soon. So she'll be giving me feedback and then hopefully we'll sell it and then I'll work with an editor and maybe they could magically help me make it the best possible book ever because that's that's kind of what happened with these other two books I, I don't I've had just amazing editors so I'm very lucky okay wait so actually I don't know if you answered my question from so long ago which was how different um the book of poems was uh -huh. um from so oh, you right. sent it out to, yeah. to contests yes. you were you were glad in retrospect that it wasn't taken right. in its earlier form mm-hmm Okay, so then my question is, how? What happened to it that changed that you changed sure. it so much, um, and then Grey Wolf accepted it, and then how much did it change after oh, it was accepted? Okay. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's seen many, many versions. It's had a bunch of different titles, none of which felt right. Um, the first title, I believe, for my it was my dissertation title was Contraband, which uh, makes sense and it's kind of a cult title, but it just didn't really fit the whole book um a lot of poems that originally were in there I took out they were just weaker poems and I just kept replacing them with better poems and uh it's pretty different from what I started sending out also the ordering was all wrong and a lot of things I cut and so I would say 
I would be embarrassed to show anyone my early draft. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's just, that's going to go to the grave, probably. You don't want, want to show your students to oh give my them God. some, some uh, moral support? Um, I have done that once before with one poem. Uh-huh. I'll do that. But the whole book, I just would die. I okay. Just, just shrivel up and die. Okay, but what, like, so let, can we talk about that for one second? With, you know, without, since you don't have it with you, like, what's the most, what's so embarrassing about it? That some poems weren't completely true. Mm. And I don't mean literally true, of course. I mean, like, they weren't absolutely necessary. Um, I wrote poems that, were competent but really didn't do all that much Hmm. and that's not what i want to write that's not what i want to publish i want every poem to really matter and to cut um and there was just there are pieces in there that i was just like meh you know Mm -hmm. like so is it more is it is it like is part of what's so uncomfortable that that there was a younger version of yourself that thought that was really good yeah and now you're like you had no idea yeah Yeah. like kind of looking at old photographs of Mm -hmm. yourself and being like you really liked that outfit yeah 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 (laughs) and no one told you that was not good (laughs) yeah it's exactly the same feeling Mm -hmm. Uh uh-huh okay all right so you know, you wrote better poems, you, you figured out a whole bunch of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, then what happened from the time it was accepted for publication and, and published, Um, or I don't know, was it accepted with the caveat that like, we like it, but, or was it like, yeah, we're going to publish this and will you think about these things? Well, I had turned it in I forgot which year. It's been so long now. Um, I believe it was February or January. And then it didn't get accepted until December of that same year. And so I was just waiting and waiting and waiting. And then I, I followed up. And Jeff, who's an amazing editor, shout out to Jeff. He asked if I had a different version because he had read some poems in uh part of the the ruth lily uh uh publication that weren't in the the version that he had and so i was like oh yes i've been revising like crazy so i gave him another version with a new title and that's the version that they they took so and wait so that was a earlier version or a later version that he he was reading the version that he was reading you had subsequently revised yes got it got it yeah wow he's good that he was he was paying attention he was i was like damn jeff shots yeah Yeah. he's okay the best yeah and so i'm so glad they gave me another chance because i was like this because i was thinking that i was like this is so much better now because i worked really hard on it um because i never stopped revising ever and um they were really happy with the revision and they took it and thank god because they're they are a dream press for me so but that it was that you kind of revised yourself mm-hmm. it was not so much that that jeff or someone else like gray wolf was like you know the order is totally wrong or mm-hmm. the you know no no i mean there were some 
edits and minor revisions, but nothing really significant. Mm -hmm. I think it was already super polished because I am very obsessive. Um, I think there was some reordering of things and um, I think I took out like one poem maybe. I don't remember exactly, but it was already mostly there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm still, I, I know it must seem like, why am I asking this dumb question? But I think I, what I also, I think part of why I keep trying to ask about this and it's not like you're not answering sure, in any sure. particular way that I'm, I'm not fishing for something. Sure. I think it's, you know, I'm, I've been thinking a lot uh, for myself and um, for other artists, particularly for women artists, but not only um, this question of like how porous to be, mm-hmm. um, how open to criticism, feedback, yeah. information, which I think is super important. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I have a new manuscript that, um, you know, will be coming out eventually. And I'm like, so I'm much more afraid that nobody is telling me mm-hmm. the problems with it yeah. than of anything else. Um, so I feel really, you know, wanting that sure. kind of feedback. Um, at the same time, I also feel like, um, part of your project and part of what I'm, I'm really interested in is the way in which you're also resisting conventions Mm -hmm. or a kind of, uh, idea of how, um, you, uh, in general and you in particular Mm -hmm. should be how you should look, how you should feel, what you should want, how you should act, how your poems should be, Mm -hmm. how your writing should be. And so it gets really interesting, I think, to think about like, you know, the ways in your writerly life Mm -hmm. that you've either been um, kind of open um, to advice um, and, you know, editorial um, Mm -hmm. critique and also uh, ways that you haven't taken the advice. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are times where I say absolutely not, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I had an editor suggest I change the title of actually crying in the bathroom Mm. um and I said no Mm. what was the suggestion ambition which I just didn't understand like why did it need to be in Spanish Uh it just didn't make any sense to me and the image of crying in the bathroom I think is so perfect for the for the essay because that's what happened and it's kind of a funny image mm-hmm. um and so i was just like nope i'm not changing that and they accepted it so i'm i'm glad mm-hmm. um but there are times where it when the editors are really astute and they they're they know exactly what you're trying to do they know your vision and they're not trying to turn it into something that it's not mm-hmm. that they offer such like brilliant advice like my editor um uh, at Knopf with the novel, she made this book so much better. Mm. She really pushed me in many ways. Uh, and R- Robin uh, also really pushed me when I, I was revising that essay. Um, and I appreciate that. And there were times where I was like hesitant because I had this idea of what I wanted it to be. But in the end, I was like, no, they're right. Mm. Uh, like this one had a different title. Mm. And what was that title? Brown Girl Problems. Oh, interesting. Yeah. 
And people I prefer this title. Me I am too. not your perfect Mexican daughter. Did you did the editor come yes. up with that one? Yeah. Nice. That's awesome. Actually the assistant editor. Hi Marissa, if you're listening. Hi. <laughs> um she suggested it and I was, at first I was like, I don't know about that. And it took me a while. Mm. And then it clicked and I realized that was the perfect title. Mm-hmm. And that was that. I think it was Carmen Jimenez Smith who was telling me that one of her friends chooses all her titles. That's kind of cool. Yeah. I can't now I can't remember. I'm sorry. Carmen. Huh. Yeah. I'm uh I have a hard time with titles. So my ex used to um help me with my titles a lot. And so that was that was n- nice because I just get stuck and I can't see outside of it. I I can't see like the bigger picture at times. And so uh, I think I'm getting better. But yeah, editorial advice, the person who's giving the criticism, they have to be in line with your vision and what you're trying to do. Um, like I recently had a, a really snarky review in Kirkus um, for the novel. It was just like really mean. I was like, oh shit, okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't expect it. And at first I was just, I was taken aback. And then I realized they're not understanding what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. Yeah. I don't, I'm not writing for them. Uh, but it took me a little bit. I had to like, you know, just recuperate for a second. Um, and what's the process that you go through? Like if you, if when you sort of take something in or you're, you're, you're confronted with, um, something or someone that's like, yeah, what about this? Or I don't like this, mm-hmm. you know, and then you kind of sit with it for a while. Like, yeah. how do you know, huh, that is a good title. Hmm. That is a really good idea. Or like, I'm not writing for you. You, you don't know what right. I'm doing. I'm not, I'm just going to turn my attention away from you. Sure. Is it physical? Is it, it kind of is. It's, it's this innate just feeling where you, you know, mm. it's just intuitive um so yeah I sat with that discomfort for a little bit and then I'm like I'm really proud of this fucking book (laughs) like I worked so hard on it and the the criticism which to me is not a valid criticism is it was that the narrator is unlikable I'm like Hmm. well yeah she is but when are men criticized for having unlikable narrators right I, I don't really understand like is she a good character is she interesting? Yeah. Is she dynamic? So that annoyed me. I was like, they wouldn't say that to a man. Um, I'm just thinking, like, I, the, it's funny. Maybe I watch too much television. Mm-hmm. I do watch a lot of television. <laughs> um, but uh, I immediately thought about all of, like, the most successful television shows in which, you know, recent especially, in which, like, that are the ones I'm thinking of predominantly made, directed, mm-hmm. written by men in which every character is unlikable. Yeah. You know, like Mad Men or, you know, like, yeah, they're like, pieces of shit. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I, and, gets mad. and they love it. Yeah. They like, love it. Um, yeah. It's frustrating. Cause I'm like, that's not fair, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm going to stay true to, who I am. I'm, I'm not going to write likable female characters just because that's what people want. Yeah. Um, or certain people want, because right. I know that a lot of people relate to this character because she is flawed and she's snarky and she's mean sometimes. And I think we're all those things at times, you know, um, 
And she's not your perfect Mexican daughter. She's not. And neither am I. And, you know, we we fuck up. And I think that's just part of being a, a human being. And who wants to read a story where the character is really sweet and likable and gets everything she wants? Like, that's not something that I would ever read. Um, and I think that she, yeah, is kind of unlikable and harsh and and snarky, but she's also really damaged mm. and also really vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think they just missed the point of the book, um, which is fine. But again, it just, it was my first experience with that. And I was like, oh, okay. Mm. What am I going to do with this? And then I just kind of let it go because it's not useful. Is that kind of response the same for you, whether it's um, to your novel or to your poetry? Or do you feel like um, is one kind of criticism harder to take? Like, is it is the are the poems closer to your heart than the novel? Or I don't mean closer to sure. your heart, but yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean... I think for both of them, I I really wrote my guts out. And so it's just, you know, you expose yourself in such a way and then people are open to tear it down if they Mm -hmm. want. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. It's, I haven't received that many negative responses about the poetry, but throughout the years, I know people have thought that my writing was really weird and dark and kind of, aggressive and um people think that about me as well (laughs) so (laughs) i'm just kind of used to that i'm not for everyone it's cool um it's just you know these are not characteristics that people want to see in women oftentimes like you're not allowed to be angry and unpleasant and um fucked up and you know mean yep I just thought I just pictured my um, tombstone <laughs> and uh, and on it, it was it just says Rachel Zucker. She wasn't for everyone. That's perfect. Yeah. I thank you for that. I, 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 I love that you just said I'm not for everyone. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. Right. Because you're like a real person instead of a politician or right. something. Yeah. Who, what kind of person would you be if you, if everyone liked you? Um, that would be kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> I find it amusing now, actually, when people don't like me personally, mm. I just, I think it's really funny and that's, very different from when I was younger and I was really insecure and just like tormented by the idea of people not liking me. Yeah. And now I'm like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> you know, I, I, I think there's, there's probably no, no like, uh, official literary critical term for this, but I do think that part of what I responded to so strongly, um, in your poems was, the opposite of what I sometimes feel in poems, which is that the poet is really, it's really important for the poet to represent himself as a likable speaker. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I didn't feel that at all. I didn't at all feel as I was reading your book, like, I don't like her. I don't sure. like this speaker. That was not my feeling. But my feeling was this um, this voice is going to reveal itself to me 
in this in in complexity and vulnerability mm-hmm. and honesty and nakedness and mm-hmm. um, and pridefulness and yeah. all of these qualities that I think are really um, I mean one of the my favorite lines uh, in the book I'll get it to it yeah it's um, from the poem uh, poem of my humiliations. Um, then I became ashamed of my shame, et cetera, infinity until the end of time itself. Um, and you know, I, I love that line in the context of the poem, maybe I'll read it or sure. read another one soon, but, um, but also in terms of the history of poetry, particularly by women mm-hmm. and the ways in which it, it, like I do sometimes feel uh, when I'm writing and sometimes when I'm reading that I'm in this like hall of mirrors mm-hmm. and like the shame is reflected back and back and back and then I become ashamed of the yeah. shame of the shame of the shame yeah. of the shame <laughs> and angry about that but then I feel ashamed about the anger yeah. and uh-huh. it is just and I, I felt like that you were speaking to me mm-hmm. in this like you know, incredibly direct way about this very complicated um, emotion that I've had such a hard time describing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you want to read that poem? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. This one's like my only mildly funny poem. So it's kind of fun to read. Uh, Some people laugh. Some people get really uncomfortable. (laughs) We won't. It's okay to laugh. Yeah, we won't know. That's one of the fun things about podcasts. Some people will be laughing and some people won't and we won't know. Yeah, maybe they'll tell me later. Yeah, we'll see. (laughs) Poem of my humiliations. After the salt feast, I watched the bird peck at another bird who was already dead. What I know best is the color of sun through my own eyelids. And like those jubilant saplings, I am always so breathless and ignorant. I once fucked a man who was unspeakably ugly, and it wasn't even winter. What I mean is that I bludgeon the palm fronds to keep from sobbing. What I mean is that I lit a kite on fire and didn't say I was sorry. The gaze of the deer was nothing if not victorious. I once loved a man who was married to a martyr. No, he was married to a goat. No, he was married to a ladder. What's the difference? I cried on a toilet in the middle of New York City. Four times in one day, I counted, I promise. That time, I was stunned by my own pedendum, the smell. Then I became ashamed of my shame, etc., infinity, until the end of time itself. The vulgarity of the orchid in all of its hooded glory is showy but exquisite. The first time I ever came, the light was weak and carnivorous. I covered my eyes and the night cleared its dumb throat. I heard my mother wringing her hands the next morning. Of course, I put my underwear on backward. Of course, the elastic didn't work. What I wanted most at that moment was a sandwich. But I just nursed on this leather whip. I just splattered my sheets with my sadness. Awesome. Thank you. Um, I have in my notes uh, 
to ask you to read that. And then I have next to it incomprehensibly right now to me, capital dash sexy poem exclamation point. <laughs> and is that the one that starts with the deer? What am I even talking about? Oh, um, the love poem? Love yeah, story? Yeah. Yeah, that one's uh, in a field of broken antlers. Is yeah. that the one you're thinking Wait, about? Wait, hold on. Um, uh, talk to me about the deer yeah. in, this, in this book. You know, the cover is... Gorgeous, and yeah. it's got this amazing picture of a deer, and then a woman with—it's a woman, yeah, it's with a the woman. mask, yeah, with a and and the oh, and the other deer too. And yeah, she's got the it's okay, a beautiful sorry. painting it by uh, Juli Hernandez. She's a Chicana artist, I believe she's she's from LA. She was very kind enough to. Um, let me use the image. Mm. And so it was, it was just, when I saw it the first time, this was years ago, I was like, that's my cover. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't even have the title that I have now, but it just, I knew it was right. Um, I just find them really beautiful. Mm. Um, I love antlers. I have uh, an antler that my friend from Alaska gave me that she found. Uh, it's on my writing desk. And so... It's kind of like a talisman for me. I don't know. I just, I think they're just stunning. I have like these weird obsessions. So there's deer, um, the female body always. Um, I know people notice that I write shit a lot. Um, I'm obsessed with horses. So they just come up constantly like horses in my novel. Um, they there's two of them and they're based on anastasia and sandman from uh larry lovis mm. and then i got a tattoo of the two horses on my bicep um i just have these like weird like just kind of obsessions hmm. um you had said earlier that you can't really you wouldn't force a poem because when you force a poem or you decide like I'm, you know, if you were to say like, I'm going to write about this, I'm going to write about deer or horses or, you know, shit yeah. that it's not going to work out. But how do you know, um, that there's a poem coming through? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then once you know it's there and you're kind of, you're doing it, mm -hmm. you're, how do you, help it along without forcing it but give it like the space that it needs to come into the world yeah oh, that's a good question i think every poem is different and oftentimes it's pretty painstaking it's it's a very slow process to write a poem for me hmm. um slow in the sense that it goes through many drafts or that the actual like each word is slow coming out um both i would say i mean sometimes i just have a bunch of notes that don't really make sense together and then they start to make sense and then i start to feel a poem mm. um very rarely do i write like a whole draft of a poem all at once mm. that happens every so often but that's that doesn't that's not really my style my style is i have an image in my head or I see something and it strikes me and it kind of gnaws away at me and I have to just write through it so I can figure out what what that is 
And so um, it's always a mystery. Mm-hmm. I never know what the poem's going to be about. When when I know what the poem's going to be about, it's just, it, I'm wrong. And, okay, getting back to the sex. <laughs> <laughs> so you have these very sexy poems in the book, mm-hmm. and which I was really grateful for. Um, is it any different for you to write about um, sex and sexuality than any other topic? Um, yeah. I think it's um, it's different for me because I grew up in a pretty conservative household. Um, my parents are not really conservative anymore socially, but when I was growing up, they were kind of old school Mexican people. And um, sex was like just forbidden. Like no one talked about it. It was just seen as something wrong you didn't do it unless you were married and I always questioned that and also sex was perceived I it was presented as if it was something that was done to a woman Mm. rather than you know to people participating in this act and that always bothered me I'm like well why does it have to be like a punishment for the woman um I, I didn't get that and so I always questioned and, and pushed back against those things, those, those kinds of ideals. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's not really what a perfect Mexican daughter would do, you know? Yeah. Uh, you're not supposed to talk about sex. It's unladylike. It's dirty. Mm. Um, but that doesn't make any sense to me because it's, like the best part about being human sometimes like what why would that be shameful i don't i don't quite understand that you i think it was in an interview um you talked about um uh becoming the sex advice um columnist mm-hmm. um for uh the latina version of cosmo mm-hmm. um and that your parents were proud yeah yeah, they were sent you know sent a copy uh to their hometown in mexico Mm. and were psyched about it and that you were surprised i think you there i think i even copied this down um yeah you said for a while my mom carried the magazine everywhere to show the world my column the issue was even sent to our hometown in mexico and made its rounds throughout my large extended family to my surprise everyone was delighted even though i was encouraging women to use vibrators and have one night stands Perhaps our old-fashioned mothers, aunts, and grandmothers are changing along with us. Um, so I love, I love that. Um, you also say, uh, though my through my sex writing, one of my goals has been to become a sex cheerleader for Latinas like me. I know so many women are still trying to unpack all of their cultural baggage. Women who can't have sex without being stung with guilt. Maybe our mothers and grandmothers couldn't, but we can exist outside the binaries now. We don't have to let the world decide who we will be. Call me romantic, call me sentimental, but I think we can wage revolution with our bodies. Um, I love um, what you're saying there, and I I was curious to know Mm -hmm. um, whether the sex-positive and Mm -hmm. sex-complicated and sexy um, and sensual and... um, many bodied uh parts of your poems have what do your what does your family think about your poems and 
Um, have, do you feel the same way about your the ability of your poems to be part of that revolution as you do with the sex advice and with the prose writing that you've done? Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I hope it could change the way people view sexuality. Um, my parents are just super proud that I wrote two books. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't speak English very well, so I don't really know how much they've understood in the poetry book um and I told them that I don't like to explain my poems Hmm. so we just I think we have like this understanding like we're not going to talk about it um because that's super awkward for me um but they're they're very open-minded now they are very different from the the parents I had when I was growing up Hmm. um my brothers I know they've read my work and they just don't talk about it it's fine by me Mm. um uh i just want to get people to start seeing women in a different way um to see us as human beings and sexual beings at the same time um because we have to be one or the other or we've had to for the you know last few centuries which is really frustrating um that dichotomy i think is really unfair and so yeah uh i think it's shifting uh the the term slut shaming wasn't a term when i was growing up Mm -hmm. and now it's used all the time i'm glad so i think i think there is definitely uh a revolution happening in many ways and so 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 interesting so in some ways you have uh, i remember talking to jennifer tamayo about um, I think I asked her some similar question about how her family was responding to um, her work, particularly her father um, and um, who she was writing about in You to One. Mm-hmm. And she was like, well, I have some protection in the sense that some of the people that I'm writing about are not going to have access to it because it's written in English. Not all of them, but, right. but there's there's a little, uh, there was a space there that was important to her. Um but I guess I'm wondering, like, have there been drawbacks or have there been complications for you, not with your family necessarily, because it doesn't sound like there are mm-hmm. for lots of reasons, um, but with in the poetry community or as being a, a woman who is outspoken, who mm-hmm. is sex positive, who's writing about these things um, in poetry and prose in nonfiction um, and who's quite public about it. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, there's enormous power in that and you're part of the revolution and there, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I, I have to believe that mm-hmm. um, there are a great many people who are grateful to you and mm-hmm. vocal about that gratitude that you're willing to talk about um, sexuality, race, mental mm-hmm. illness, um, uh, in, in very open, candid terms. Um, but is there also, uh, you know, are there people who are like, Oh, it's Erica. She's writing all the sex poems, you know, or maybe, yeah, that's fine with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's perfectly okay. Um, also I have to remind people that I'm not the speaker mm-hmm. and, I mean, my poetry is very much personal in many ways, but also I I make a lot of stuff up because that's what poems require you to do. Because mm. if you just adhere to the literal truth, the poems are going to suck. So I just have to always 
remind people like no i wasn't in love with a man who was married to a goat like you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. um those things are not true but they are you know and same with the novel people are like are you the narrator and i'm like yes and no in -hmm. some ways i am in some ways i'm not in some ways she's a lot funnier and smarter than i was um i've got i've had people come up to me after reading the the novel in public and they come up to me and they're like oh i'm really sorry your sister died i'm like i don't i I don't have a sister Mm, (laughs) i never mm -hmm. did so it's interesting what people project or assume and i in a sense that's not really my concern Mm -hmm. like they could assume all they want Mm -hmm. because i don't really have control over that so in a way the the genre it provides a protection in Mm -hmm. a sense like yeah right and and um you were saying how some of the earlier drafts of um lessons from on expulsion uh in the those poems didn't all feel true to you yeah um but when you say that um you're not necessarily saying autobiographically accurate right so can you talk a little bit about like how you know if a poem is true because it's obviously not the same as like you know um what happened yeah yeah um I think there's an authenticity that is um, just palpable. Mm. Um, I, I know when I read a poem by you know other people, I, I know when it's not authentic. I know when there's a, a like a there's a lot of ego, or I think sometimes people want to look better than who they are Mm. or um try to present themselves in a certain way and i'm not interested in any of that for me it's like what does the poem need i don't care about what i look like because that's it's not about me it's about the poem so that's always my goal to serve the poem and to serve the novel and to serve the essay um if I look bad, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a person and I'm flawed. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are going to project whatever they want anyway, mm-hmm. because that's just who we are. I mean, we, when we sit down to a text, we, we come with all this baggage, you know? Um, so I, I guess I don't really worry about that. Mm-hmm. Like if I'm the one writing the sexy poems, like that's cool i guess <laughs> i don't know it's kind of great because in a way the the criticism of your novel is praise because mm-hmm. you just said like i the thing that feels untrue to you is when someone tries to make themselves look better than they are or different than they are or right. be something that they're not and so the idea of being comfortable having to what someone else considers to be an unlikable yeah. um speaker means you're you know you're uh true to yourself yeah um i just that's how i live my life you know Mm -hmm. i don't try to pretend something i'm not i don't know how people do that Mm -hmm. to be quite honest um i think it's important to accept that we're flawed human beings and we make a lot of mistakes and it's just part of the experience of being alive Mm mm-hmm I, I'm curious to know where you got the confidence mm-hmm. for that, because I think that that's, um, you know, people have s- 
women have are under a lot of pressure to mm-hmm. be likable. Yeah. Um, and um, I think that people of color are internalizing yeah. so many negative messages um, uh, mm-hmm. from, you know, the white voice of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how did you, I mean, I, there was a moment when you were writing about um, having grown up in a working mm-hmm. class Mexican family and ca- the Catholic influence mm-hmm. and the sort of pressure at that time from your parents who seem like they've changed a lot, but yeah. like to, to um, you know, see sex and sexuality negatively. But you also were, were writing about how from a very early age you considered yourself a feminist. Yeah. And so I'm really interested in like who or what um, enabled you to kind of have that, um, really strong sense of self, that confidence, Mm -hmm. um, that identification and to have, to, to have become this person, um, who's like, yeah, people are flawed and I am who I am. And, Mm -hmm. um, cause I think that for, for a lot of people, that's really, uh, there are so many obstacles sure. um, to, to come to that, to that level of, of self-knowledge and self-confidence. Yeah. I mean, that took a lot of work, I will say. I think a lot of it has to do with being Buddhist. Um, I converted two and a half years ago to Buddhism, and it's really changed the way that I see myself and see the world. Um, I see everything as interconnected. I acknowledge that suffering is just a part of life and um what's important is how we react to the suffering um i just learned to accept a lot of things like people make mistakes and bad things happen and what's important is the response to that um what are you going to do with that experience And so I just feel like more at peace with myself now that I've, I've internalized that. Like, um, if I say something really embarrassing, I just kind of let it go now before I would just torment myself. Like, Oh my God, I can't believe I said that. What are people going to think? And I'm like, I'm a person Hmm. people fuck up and I'm sure, you know, whoever heard it, probably said something embarrassing recently too you know who cares um i was just really tired of the Mm -hmm. self-flagellation that i grew up with just like what why am i gonna live like that i'm just gonna try to be the best person that i can be and when i fuck up i will acknowledge it and i will fix it and i will move on Mm. Because what else is there to do? I just, I don't think it's healthy. What brought you to Buddhism? How'd you get there? I was always really attracted to it ever since I was in high school. Um, But I didn't really know much about it. I tried meditating. I bought a book and I couldn't do it or thought I couldn't do it. Um, And it always intrigued me over the years, just the the philosophy that... um, that everything is impermanent Hmm. because that's the only thing that's certain. And to finally be able to accept that 
is has been very liberating like nothing nothing in this world will last forever Mm. um our bodies are temporary um so knowing that um makes me appreciate things in a very deep level uh but what finally brought me to it officially was a, a friend of mine who i met during a trip to norway um this organization in chicago had five writers um go to norway to this amazing festival and it was so cool it was such a great experience and i, I met this woman and i was like i want to be like her she's really cool like she just didn't give any fucks about what people thought of it was just refreshing and and in a sense i've i've been that way but not to that extent and then i when i met her i was like i want to be your friend and so we became friends and she invited me to her um, buddhist meetings and i just i converted because it all made sense i was like impermanence being kind um turning poison into medicine um it all just it's something that I think everyone should incorporate into their lives. Mm. So, um, it's completely transformed who I am. I think Mm. that's beautiful. Yeah. It's been pretty, pretty rad. Mm. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, it's a weird, this is a really weird question to ask right after what you just said. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, so, you know, as the daughter of Mexican immigrants mm-hmm. and we're having this conversation, it's like three days, I think, or after Trump's um, yeah, a horrible uh, decision about DACA. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you know, how your family is affected um, by all of the insane anti-immigration um, bullshit that's going on and also your students I don't know if you've um, have you, you has your semester started yet it hasn't no okay. uh, it'll start on Thursday mm-hmm. um, yeah that's a good question I I worry about everybody mm-hmm. at this point um, I know well my parents are citizens and they're protected in that sense in a, but sometimes I wonder even then like what I be protected just because I'm a citizen Mm. or are we going to lose those rights too? Um, It's just scary. Yeah. I know a lot of undocumented people and it's a really terrifying time to, to think that you could just be uprooted and sent to a place that no longer really belongs to you anymore. Um, There's just a lot of fear and I think I'm fortunate to like teach at Princeton and I, I'm like in protected by that. Mm-hmm. And uh, my parents are protected by their citizenship. And, but in my family, there are people who are laborers who don't have documentation and I don't know how they live. You know, I, I don't, I can't imagine what it's like to fear that you're going to be uprooted and taken away from your family all the time. Right. I, I mean, I, yeah, when I was listening to you talk about, um, 
how comforting and and um, organizing it is to accept the Buddhist principles mm-hmm. of you know, everything is temporary. And, you know, I, I was thinking like, yes, that does absolutely make sense. And when, you know, when you are not protected in terms of like your physical Mm -hmm. well-being, or you don't have a home or you don't have, you know, um, rights that you can count on, um, that, uh, enforced, um, sense of um instability is totally not what you're talking about no no um and the the deep contradiction of those two things right like no i think about that a lot yeah mm -hmm. like i think about the principles that i believe in and then i'm like well would i believe these things if i were a refugee Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like do you have to have a certain amount of stability in order to embrace uh non-attachment right yeah i think so mm-hmm. i think so because if i were like fleeing from a dictator you know it would be really hard to see the silver lining and all of that mm-hmm. uh, if my family were murdered you know by a regime you know that how how do you make sense of that um how do you move on from that and find meaning in it Mm-hmm. I don't know and I'm just I'm fortunate in many ways and I haven't had to experience that kind of suffering so that's something that I think about and I struggle with at times yeah I mean you you've written the these poems over the course of 10 years and your novel over the of the you know five years but they're coming into the world at this particular moment yeah. in this particular political climate and you know, I wonder if you feel like they're going to be read differently um, and maybe even have more power um, than you could have originally imagined. Yeah, I just, I didn't imagine this would happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm naive or something, but I just just thought that the world would be getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, and people always tell me that my books are so relevant. I'm like, I wish they weren't. Yeah. I don't want them to be. I wish all of those things were obsolete but unfortunately they're not it's a scary time um but i have to believe that the good outweighs the bad that there are good people fighting for a just world and that something better is possible because if i didn't believe that i think i would just crumple Mm. i think it's really important to hold on to that hope um, I mean, I, it's not guaranteed, nothing is, but the idea of a just world is what keeps me going. Hmm. What are you reading or watching or listening to that's giving you, um, that's sustaining for you, giving you energy, helping you maintain that hope? Oh man, I keep referring to Rebecca Solnit's Hope in the Dark. Hmm. It's so freaking good. It's stunning. I love her writing. I think she's amazing. So that I always go to. Um, I'm reading a lot of YA right now. And I just, I find it, like I said, very comforting um, to know that there are, are young people really trying to make the world better. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What are some of your favorite YA books? I feel like I feel or authors like sure. Yeah. Um, Sherman Alexie's YA book was so good. Uh, it's one of my favorites. I'm reading right now the first Rule of Punk by Celia Perez. Hmm. Uh, and it's really cute about a young girl who's very punk rock. She's biracial. It's it's a great story. Um, what else? I feel like I'm reading a million things all at once. Mm. So it, it's hard for me to remember all the books that I've read recently. Um, Poetry-wise, I'm trying to think. I am. This is a, it's a totally selfish question. Oh, sure, Because I'm just sure. getting, like, I just, you know, I some of my best... Um, uh, you know, I think I think it was when I was talking to Carmen Jimenez Smith that she recommended your book. Oh, cool. Um, and then, um, so yeah, I just I'm just like yeah. always looking for you know I write down everything and then I I go then I get my next reading list and it's, nice. it's great. Well, don't call us dead, um, Denez. Smith, oh my yeah, god, it's a great book. That was devastating, mm-hmm. astonishing. All the adjectives. Holy shit, that book was good. Yeah. Um, Denez is going to come on pot on commonplace in, oh, cool. in October. Nice. Yeah. I'm super psyched. Yeah, he's fucking great. Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to, I, 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 there's something I don't want to forget to ask because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really curious about, um, I know that you are a Contamundo fellow, mm-hmm. um, and also went to Breadloaf. Yeah. And I was, I'm really interested in, um, your experience with both of those, mm-hmm. um, organizations and communities. Sure. And, uh, cause I'm interested in these like non-academic, um, ways of supporting writers. Yeah. And so I was just curious to know, um, like when, when you had both of those experiences in terms of the writing of these two books and oh, okay. and how and and what that was like for you yeah well canto mundo i was a fellow the first year i think in 2012 was it hmm. or 13 oh my god i'm getting old um and it just introduced me to a whole community of amazing people who are very supportive of um each other's work and so hmm it's it's been really incredible to see people's careers uh, uh, unfold uh, during that time um it's just like a built-in family in mm-hmm. a sense and bread loaf i think that was 2014 it was before my book got picked up it was really valuable to be there as a scholar and to have people like know who i was and listen to my work and um, and to have, you know, mentors, um, help me, you know, navigate the publication process. Uh, I met with an agent when I was, when I was there, she didn't take my book, but just that experience alone was pretty special. I mean, to be able to meet with agents, Mm. Um, it just creates so many different opportunities and I think it's really important to go to those places with an open mind and also remember not to be too eager or too slimy or too needy, you know, cause the, you could read that on, uh, on people immediately. Mm. Um, so I think 
making organic relationships is really important rather than to be like, oh, I'm going to go talk to that person because he's the editor of blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Um, just be a person. Because um, otherwise it's kind of, I've seen people embarrass themselves. I'm like, damn, dude, like just relax. <laughs> I don't know. Everyone's a person. Like just chill. Um, I just, I think it's important to also support other writers always. Because hmm. It's not a zero-sum game like my success or someone else's success doesn't negate yours or vice versa. You know, like, I think there's this, like, weird competitive streak that some people have, and I don't really get it. I'm like, I'm not competing with anyone else. I'm competing with myself. Mm -hmm. And so just be supportive of others. Mm -hmm. I think that's key Mm -hmm. because people remember when you're not. Yeah. I was going to ask you, um, I was going to save it for my last question, um, but you might have just answered it, which was like, do you have advice for um, other writers or yeah. sex advice? Because um, I never, no one ever gives sex advice on this podcast, but maybe be supportive of others might be the, yeah. <laughs> the answer to both. But do you have advice, sex, sexual or literary or both? Um, I could do both. Yeah, do it. Literary I'll say it again. Be a person. Mm. Don't be weird. Don't be too thirsty, as the kids say. Mm. Um, just let relationships develop in a way that feels natural. Because um, I I could tell when someone is approaching me with an agenda. Mm. I don't like it. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. Mm. And I don't respond well to that. Like being picked up at a bar and in the wrong way. Yeah. yeah. It's like, ew, yeah. no, get away yeah. from me. I don't want to be friends with you. <laughs> um, sex advice. Oh, man. That's, that's hard. It's just, it's taken me my whole life to undo all the shame. Mm. Like, I'm finally at the point where I just enjoy it and I don't feel bad about it. But the work involved was tremendous Hmm. so i just want to tell women not to be apologetic about their needs Hmm. and desires it's part of being a person it's allowed Hmm. so i guess that's it you want to end with a poem sure great do you want to read something from your novel Uh, instead It's weird to read like a chunk of prose. Okay. I, I don't read know a, what I read would a, read. Read a poem. Okay, cool. All right. Um, Saudad. In the Republic of Flowers, I studied the secrets of hanging clothes. I didn't know if it was raining or someone was frying eggs. I held the skulls of words that mean nothing. You left between the hour of the ox and the hour of the rat. I heard the sound of two braids. I watched it rain through a mirror. Am I asking to be spared or am I asking to be spread? Your body smelled like cathedrals and I kept your photo in a bottle of mezcal semen salt wolf's teeth you should have touched my eyes until they blistered kissed the skin of my instep for thousands of years sealed honey never spoils won't crystallize i saw myself snapping a swan's neck i needed to air out my eyes the droplets on a spider web and the grace they held who gave me permission 
to be this person, to drag my misfortune on this leash made of gold. Thank you. That's Thank you. a beautiful poem to end with. Thanks. Thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. This was amazing. Oh. This has been episode 39 of Commonplace, Conversations with Poets and Other People. Music by Moses Zucker-Gorin, design work by Eitan Darwish. Commonplace producers are Christine LaRusso, Nicholas Fuenzalita, James Ciano, and Zach Tackett. Our advisor in all things is Daniel Schiffman. Thank you to the presses and to the patrons who support Commonplace and to all our listeners. Take care, and thank you so much for listening. Thank you.